well who's played a part in today's service and and to each one that's going to play a, a part in it um, later on in the communion and feet washing. Um, it was funny as um, James was talking about Jacob, uh, Amy said that she didn't realize that he was 87 when, when he married Leah, and she said no wonder he couldn't tell the difference between the two. <laughs> I guess she thought, must have thought that he was a strapping young man. I didn't realize, realize that either, so thank you for, for teaching us a little bit about him today. And Daniel, you said when you were 40, you didn't think you would make it to 50. Well, I'm 29, and I turned 30 in about six months, and I don't know if I'm going to make it to 30. So <laughs> that's one of my uh, things. I don't know why. But anyway, um, today I wanted to start off by telling you guys a little bit about, uh, uh, tell you guys a story. Um, it's a story about Walter Ozipoff. Now, I know we have a lot of history lovers in here, so for those of you who already know the story, sorry about your luck, but uh, <laughs> the story goes like this. Just months before America entered World War II, a 23-year-old Marine from Ohio named Walter Ozipoff boarded a DC-2 transport plane at a naval air base on North Island in San Diego, California. He and several other Marines took off on a routine parachuting jump exercise on May 15, 1941. While, meanwhile, Lieutenant Bill Lowry, a 34-year-old Navy test pilot from New Orleans, was already putting his observation plane through its paces. And John McCansk, a husky 41-year-old aviation chief mechanist from Montana, was checking out of the aircraft that he was scheduled to fly later. Before the sun was high in the noonday sun, these three men would be linked forever. Ozipov was a seasoned parachutist, a former collegiate wrestling and gymnast star. He had already made more than 20 jumps. That morning, Ozipov would supervise practice jumps by, his, by 12 of his men. Three separate canvas cylinders containing ammunition and rifles were also to be parachuted overboard as part of the exercise. Nine men jumped from the plane and then disaster struck. Ozipov was standing near the jump door, and as he started to toss out the last cargo container, the automatic release cord on his backpack parachute became looped over the cylinder, and his chute was suddenly ripped open. He tried to grab hold of the quickly billowing silk, but the next thing he knew, he was jerked from the plane, hitting the side of the aircraft. The impact broke two of his ribs, fractured three vertebrae, and then, as Ozipov plunged towards the ground, he was yanked to a stop and then jerked backwards. The, shoot, the chute's chest strap and one leg strap had broken. Only the second leg strap was still holding, and it had slipped down to Ozipov's ankle. One by one, 24 of the 28 lines between his precariously attached harness and the parachute snapped. He was now hanging 12 feet below and 15 feet be behind the tail of the plane. Four parachute shroud lines were twisted around his leg, and that was all that kept him from being pitched to the earth. He was literally hanging on by a thread. Caleb, go ahead and put up that picture of it. This is a picture that was taken of him hanging there, and that's, that's uh, Walter Ozipov. And it gets worse. His weight put tremendous pressure on the plane, and the pilot, Harry Johnson, was struggling to keep from nosediving. Furthermore, Johnson had no radio contact. The plane was running low on fuel, and other men in the plane couldn't reach Ozipov. The dangling Marine, injured and terrified, kept his eyes squeezed shut against the rushing wind. Blood dripped from his helmet. 
He was stuck and facing certain death. I'll tell you the end of the story later, but for now I want you to imagine how helpless Walter Ozipoff felt. You may not have dangled from an airplane, but you have, like all of us, felt like you were turned upside down. Maybe you felt like you were hanging on by a thread or like you were at the end of your rope, stretched to your breaking point, or stuck in a situation that you couldn't escape. It's not usually as dramatic as what this Marine experienced, but feeling powerless like you're holding on by a thread is a real fear, and it can keep you frozen. Caleb, you can take that slide down, and we'll wait for slide number two later on. Just in my own life and thinking about the times when I have been hanging on by a thread, I think one of the lowest points in my life, um, I remember driving out of my lane, and I had just mowed that day, and thinking to myself that, you know, I wasn't good enough or wasn't worth anything. And I thought the one positive thing is at least I, I'm pretty good at mowing. And that was the thread that I was sort of hanging on by. And some of the greatest characters in the Bible were immobilized for a time. Moses was struck in the desert for years, unaware of God's future for him. Naomi was trapped in Moab after the death of her husband and sons. Peter was caught in a depressive cycle on the Saturday before Easter. The Apostle John was exiled on the island of Patmos, lonely and unable to continue his ministry, or so he thought. So although you feel stuck by your circumstances or by your own lethargy, that's not where God wants you to stay. We all have phases in life where we need to stop and regain our bearings, but eventually we need to go and start moving forward again. John 10.10 puts it this way, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You can be stuck and live abundantly. You, you cannot be stuck and live abundantly at the same time. You can't be downcast while your spiritual fervor for God's, while keeping your spiritual fervor for God's service. You can't be immobilized and give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. So how do you get free of this? I have some thoughts that I'd like to suggest to you. First of all, accept the fact that not everything in life is of equal importance. We all struggle with becoming so distracted by molehills that we can't charge up the mountain. But we have to remember that not every situation is eternal. In his parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 22, Jesus said, Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Oftentimes, our inability to move forward is due to a lack of priorities. We fail to even consider that some things are more important than others. Without prioritizing your life, you can just sort of, you can't sort through the cares of this world. We become paralyzed by burdens and, busy, and business and busyness. In trying to do everything, you end up doing nothing. This can devastate your morale and your emotional health. So you have to learn to trust God with your future. If you're going to diminish your distractions, you're going to have to come up with your priorities. So secondly, if not everything in life is of equal importance, then the next logical step is to actually determine the most important things 
in your life. And to do that, you need clarity. Start by asking what's most important to God. What isn't as important to him? What do you need to focus on in your life? And what can you start deleting? Evaluate your activities. Delete things of less importance to keep things of greater worth. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus gave us three principles that should be central to our life. But before I read that, one of the things that I realized sort of at the, at the lowest point in my life when I felt shameful and the weight of sin was on me was that God loved me right there, right where I was at. I didn't have to do anything for him to love me, but he loved me. And so we have to realize that love and we have to stand on that firm foundation that he loves me and that I'm worth something to him. And we're going to be remembering what he did for each one of us today and how he showed his love for us. So these three principles that are central to our life, this is a familiar verse that we talk about quite often here. It's Mark 12, 30 to 31. It says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus boiled down the entire Old Testament into one overarching, overwhelming priority, and that priority is love. Without understanding this, it is impossible to move forward. Love, as God defines love, is life's ultimate priority. Our first priority is loving God. Deuteronomy 6 says it this way, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus was simply quoting that in Mark 12. More than anything else, that is what we're made to do. We are made for a passionate, practical embracing of God and all of his attributes, all of his virtues, all of his grace, embracing him with an overflowing heart of devotion and gratefulness that affects everything else we do, everything we say, and everything we think. It's a relationship. So I ask you today, how's your relationship with Jesus? Jesus actually answered the question that was posed to him by giving more than what was asked. Jesus said, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Within that same priority to love, there's a second application. We're to love our neighbors. And believe it or not, we have 7.9 billion of them. We're getting really close to 8 billion people. I was just looking that up, and as it turns out, India recently passed China in the most amount of population in, as far as countries. That's a side uh, interesting little tidbit there. But obviously, we can't know, personally know, or care for each one of these people. But the Lord knows exactly how to lead us to those that we do need to serve. Loving others is sharing the compassion of Christ with the people around you. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then in verse 10 of that same chapter, it says, Love does not harm a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And loving your neighbor is not something that you just feel. Loving your neighbor is something that you do. It's an action. James 2.8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, he says, you do well. But then again, keeping our priorities correctly aligned, it's a daily challenge. And finally, the third thing that I see in this is that you are to love yourselves. Now, there's a debate in today's world about this, but notice again how Jesus stated this commandment. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, not just you shall love your neighbor, period, done. No, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we have to be careful here because the devil always tries to turn self-love into selfishness, ego, conceit, haughtiness, self-importance, and all other things that make up sinful narcissism. And I'm not recommending either any of these things, nor am I recommending self-hatred. On the other hand, you do have a God-given responsibility to take care of yourself. Your personality is the means by which God touches others. If you get in a rut and you're not seeing or defining yourself as God does, then you'll pull others down with you instead of uplifting them. But when your priorities are straight and love is in its right place, you'll be able to move forward and take care of yourself and love yourself. So that brings us back to our Marine here who was dangling on by a thread when we left him. You can bring that first slide up again, and then we'll get to the second in just, just a minute. So Walter Ossipoff was hanging by his ankle, pulled behind a plane by the cords of his parachute, which were entangled in the plane's wheels. The pilot, Harold Johnson, was running out of fuel, and he knew if he tried an emergency landing, he would kill Ossipoff. So he descended to about 300 feet above the ground and started circling around the airbase. A few po people noticed the plane flying by every few minutes, but assumed it was towing a piece of equipment or a target. One pilot, Lieutenant Bill Lowry, looked up and he knew what was happening. He and John McCants, who was working nearby, saw it at the same time, the figure dangling from the plane. As the DC-2 circled once again, Lowry yelled to McCants, There's a man hanging on that line. Do you suppose we can get him? McCants answered grimly, we can try. So they jumped into a SOC-1, SOC-1, which is a, a two-seat open cockpit observation plane, and took off without even knowing if the aircraft was fueled and without permission for the flight. He just said, give me the green light, I'm taking off. Suddenly, everybody on the ground realized the nature of the emergency, and every eye was fixed on the situation. Within minutes, Lowry and McCants were under the transport flying at 300 feet. They made five approaches, but the air proved to be too bumpy to try for a rescue. There was no radios on the planes, but Lowry hand-signaled Johnson to head towards the Pacific, where the air would be smoother and the two planes then rose to an altitude of 3,000 feet. Johnson held his plane on a straight course and reduced the speed to that of the smaller plane, 100 miles an hour. Lowry edged the plane closer, cl closer with such precision that the maneuvers jibbed with the swings of Ozipov's inert body. His timing had to be exact so that Ozipov did not smash into the SOC 1's propeller. The SOC 1 maneuvered beneath the larger plane, and McCants stood upright in the, his rear cockpit seat and lunged for Ozipov. You can go ahead and put that slide number two up. 
There it is. He already has it. He grabbed him by the waist, and Azapah flung his arms around McCants' shoulders in a death grip. McCants pulled him across the tiny seat, but Azapah was still attached to his harness. This, by the way, is a painting of the rescue that was donated to the National Museum of the Marine Corps. Now both planes and the Marines were in danger. Because McCants was using both hands to hold on to Azapah in a vice, there was no way for him to cut the cords that were still attached to Azapah to the that still attached Azapov to the DC-2. Somehow, by the grace of God, Lowry inched his plane closer and closer to the DC-2, getting so close that it actually bumped into the DC-2 and put a 12-inch gash in its tail. But in the process, the propeller sliced through the remaining cords of Azapov's parachute and freed him up. After flying through the air for more than a half hour, dangling on a parachute line, Azapov was free. But he wasn't safe. Now the cut parachute cord became entangled in the sock's rudder, and Lowry struggled to maintain control of the plane. But he did, and when he landed, a roaring shout came from the crowd. They had just witnessed what was later called one of the most brilliant and daring rescues in naval history. And as for our hapless Marine, he lost consciousness right after he heard the crowd applauding the landing. He then spent six months in a hospital, and as soon as he recovered, he went right back to jumping out of airplanes. All of that to say, you've been hanging around long enough. Grab onto the lifeline of God's priorities and move forward in the design and the direction that he has for your life. Make him your number one priority and then organize your life around loving him and others, yourself included. And God will move you forward into his grace in a meaningful way. May God grant that happens for all of us.